Today on episode number 352 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, David Franklin joins me to talk about his new book, Invisible Teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, David Franklin, is a British writer who's fascinated by how we learn and about statistics. After taking Dan Levy's famous statistics class in the fall of 2018, he returned as part of the teaching team the following year and took notes on everything Dan did. Those notes became his new book, Invisible Learning. He has two master's degrees, one in mathematics from the University of Cambridge, the other in development economics from the Harvard Kennedy School. He also has eight years of experience in the private sector as a country risk manager and as a keen data scientist. In his spare time, David is an avid reader, radio cricket commentator, and long-suffering fan of Newcastle United. He lives in London with his partner, Katri. David, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to uh, be here. I want to begin with your grandparents. Would you tell me about Gan and Boompa and a little bit about how they taught you to learn? Sure, of course. So my grandparents were hugely influential on me, both at an early stage in my life and uh, later on. And I think, you know, grandparents instill certain values in their children and then their children's children. And yeah, there is no particular right or wrong in in the values that they choose to instill. But wisdom was very high up on their list. Wisdom, honesty, humility, those those kinds of things, more so than other values like bravery or courage or wisdom was always kind of very high up. So I would spend hours uh, debating with, with the pair of them, whether it would be politics or maths or statistics. My grandfather used to teach thermodynamics at a university. He passed away last year. And you know, the first time you have a grandparent pass away like that, it's it's a shock. You know, you you don't realize that when it's your own grandparents how how hard it's going to hit you. And I think I started to think a lot about how can I be more like him? You know, what what is it about him that made him special? And this sense of real humility towards everyone. He always made you feel like you were the most important person in the conversation or the room. And I think that sense of humility was relevant to how he approached knowledge as well. You never got the sense from him that he felt like he knew everything, even though sometimes to you it felt like he did. And I think you know, approaching the search for knowledge and the search for wisdom with his humility is something that I always kind of try to do. 
That reminds me so much of the research that Dunning and Kruger did, the Dunning Kruger effect, where the more we know about something, the less we realize it. And I'm just being immersed <laughs> these days in the news and, and also in books that I'm reading, just the importance of that kind of humility. But along with the wisdom, you know, th those two things kind of interplaying. I love that. Well, I want us to visit an entirely different context. Now we're kind of going a little bit away from family and we're entering a classroom. And instead of entering a classroom when it began, we're entering a classroom as it is ending, as a class is ending. And there are students there crying, which <laughs> it might, you know, sometimes you might have the, the tears of the stress of the end of the semester finally being released, but these are not these kinds of tears. Would you talk a little bit about some of the emotions and tell me what class it is I'm referring to? <laughs> sure. So, so I just found this completely mind-blowing. Okay, so this, for context, is Dan Levy's classroom. He's a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. And um, when students see that they have to take his class, it's called advanced quantitative methods or statistics. And this is the sort of class that everyone wants to avoid, right? I mean, the, the, you don't go to a place like the Harvard Kennedy School, which is a place for leaders and you know, government students, et cetera, to learn about policy. You don't go to that kind of place to learn about statistics, really. And so they come into it with all of these perceptions about what statistics is as a subject. And they leave in tears, as you said. And I, ju I just found it completely crazy that by the end of the class, you see people having this huge emotional reaction to the loss of that class, this environment that he's managed to build up over the course of a semester. Students feel so attached to it that they, they have this response to its loss. And I wanted to kind of know why that was. You know, it's, it's fascinating to see people react in that way to you know, what is traditionally a dry, a dry subject. And Having, having kind of observed that and having thought, you know, right, well, I'm going to go back to his class next year as a, as a teaching assistant, write down everything he does, uh, see if I can understand what, what it is. The next kind of logical question is, okay, so, you know, he, he gets all these students to cry and they're all emotional and all of this, but does that actually help when it comes to teaching? And what I try to argue in the book is that it does. But I find I think it's quite a kind of fun launch point for the book. You know, why do why do these students react in this crazy way? Yeah, there's an author, Sarah Rose Kavanaugh, who wrote a book, The Spark of Learning. And the whole entire book is just about the role that emotions play in our learning. And he certainly doesn't only employ an emotion of loss and grief over the class being over, but humor is used extensively in his teaching and curiosity and another emotion gets used throughout. And so I'm excited to explore this class a little bit more with you. Let's begin with kind of the, the overarching themes. And I want to quote here Ken Bain, who wrote a book, What the Best College Teachers Do. And he's famous for having done a longitudinal study about just the greatest college teachers. What is it that they all have in common? Because they all are very different as well. And he said, good teaching is about having students answer questions or solving problems that they find intriguing, interesting, or beautiful. And I almost felt like there was just this thread of Ken Bain really setting that out there for us as educators throughout the book. Would you talk first about what is an airport idea. Sure. So 
an airport idea is something that Dan really wants you to take away from his class. And, you know, that's not a new concept. Most professors, most teachers, I think, wrap up lectures with, you know, some bullet points on what they hope will be the key takeaways from the class. But Dan is trying to maximize the student's focus at that moment when he brings in an airport idea. And he's trying to just make sure that you remember it. So what he says to the students is the airport idea is one that I want you to remember in five years time when I bump into you at an airport. He's less interested in whether they can, you know, recite every formula that, that, go, that goes through uh, the class. He wants to make sure that when they've forgotten everything else, they remember these key ideas. And this idea of an airport as well, there's something sort of high level about it. And there's something aspirational about it, too. You know, these are international students who are going to go, be going back to their home countries once they've finished Harvard and applying some of the lessons that Dan has taught them. And so that, that I think it's quite a clever way of getting them to pay attention and memorize those key concepts because it really puts the focus on them and their kind of future lives down the line. This is something that so many struggle with. I mean, you mentioned, yes, so many of us have that list of bullets. The trouble, and I can, I can always tell that there's going to be trouble. Trouble's coming <laughs> whenever a conversation <laughs> talks about we have to cover this. We have to cover the material. Whenever that phrase gets used, it is generally indicative of really a challenge of not having really wrestled through that airport conversation five years after a class is over. <laughs> and you quote him as saying, you know, that he, yes, he wants them to be able to explain the ideas to him. But the last, tra I, I don't want it to trail off. The last thing he says is, even if you've forgotten everything else. And are there concepts that come to mind that you can recall him wrestling with that most statistics classes at that level at an institution like that would try to jam in there that he kind of, it, 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 can you think of kind of the wrestling around a, a topic that he decides not to cover because, or, or, or not to cover in the same way that someone else teaching a similar class might? Yeah, I think I think it comes down to the kind of background for the class. So I think too often statistics is seen as a kind of offshoot of mathematics. That's how it's often taught. You kind of start with these mathematical ideas and you prove these theorems and things, and then you work out what you can infer and what you can't about some data that you have. And Dan's idea is that, you know, it may be mathematical in some sense, but that's not what's interesting or relevant or best for students to learn. Yeah. Statistics for him is about teaching students to evaluate truth in the world, which at the moment is more important than, than ever. So when he kind of puts those airport ideas forward, he's not saying, look, this is one mathematical theorem that you've really got to learn. It's all about the takeaways. And what fascinated me about the class was that it is as much about students' relationship with statistics as it is about, you know, statistics or math itself. And, you know, one practical thing that he does, uh, you know, to take an example, there's a lot of behavioral science right at the start. So it's about, you know, how do we react to numbers? How do, how do our biases affect the way that we think? Because you could be the best mathematician in the world. And if your biases lead you astray when you're trying to use your conclusions and present to policymakers or people that can actually do something with the thing that you found, it's going to be less helpful to them. So I think you know, Dan is interested in, in all of those things, in, in leading students to a point where they can communicate 
ideas succinctly and correctly. And that is less about the math and it's more about those kind of psychological aspects of their relationship with statistics. So he has done a lot of wrestling and in my mind still continues to do a lot of wrestling around these airport ideas. Would you talk for a few minutes about the practicality? How how does he make it known? I mean, he, he you already said he tells them, <laughs> I am going to be sure he tells them what airport ideas are. And he doesn't just tell them once. That happens throughout the class. But what are the other ways in which he might transition into a new airport idea or away from one? What are sort of those transitions and, and some of the techniques that he uses? So I think practically, um, you know, Dan has three screens at the front. And this is in a um, this is in a kind of real classroom, not a virtual one. But he will you know, do similar kind of things in, in a virtual way in terms of how he's focusing attention. And what you'll find is that the left and the right screen will both be showing an evocative picture. So one airport idea is this, this concept of cherry picking, the idea that you, know, you can pretty much get statistics to tell you whatever you like if you pick the right ones. And he will have a picture of a little girl picking bright red cherries uh, on either side. And it sounds something quite small, but then when you ask the students, you know, what, what, do you, what do you most remember about Dan's class? Virtually everyone says cherry picking because that, that, that picture of the little girl picking cherries is so kind of evocative for such a long time. So I think you have those kind of practical things that he does. I also think it comes back to something we talked about already, humility. This idea that you know Dan is accepting that no matter how great a teacher he is, the students aren't going to be paying attention the whole time. He, he doesn't have enough. We talk about attention as a currency. He, he doesn't have enough currency to keep their attention for 75 minutes twice a week. So he knows that if there's something that he really wants them to focus on, he's got to make that clear to them. And he's got to pause. He's got to kind of finish the section he was on. He's got to make sure he's got their attention use all the practical aspects of the, you know, the framing and the screens and things that he can, tell them that this is, this is important, this is an airport idea, motivate the idea, and, then, and only then does he kind of come out with it. And I think if he hadn't done all of those things, it would be less obvious for the students that you know, we've, we've really got to pay attention now. Yeah, I loved that example of the cherry picking picture and and could so vividly see it in my own mind. And there's so much there. There's evidence around cognitive load and how when you have so many bullets up there, I'm supposed to read at the same time. I'm supposed to hear what you're saying and my brain cannot read and cannot listen in equal measure at the same time. And just all the all that that can produce versus now you've really given me something that I both can see. And then you're also sharing this vivid imagery and powerful notions of this. And you interviewed prior students. And this was, you know, well, they I I got the impression they remembered all of the airport ideas. But this <laughs> this idea of the cherry picking picture really came up for a lot of them and really did get kind of brought into their own sense of what they're taking away from the class. It, it does. And, you know, if the students haven't remembered all the airport ideas. Dan then towards the end of the class says, you know, which are the airport ideas that, that are most memorable? And the ones that they don't pick, he then says, right, well, I see you, you didn't talk about X, Y, and Z. And so we're just going to go over that again, just to give himself a final shot at instilling it in the memory. Yeah. And I do want to also just highlight what you said about humility and attention. So much of it, we can 
unfortunately kind of get inside of ourselves inside of our ego. And when people aren't paying attention, somehow that's about them. And, you know, there we can, <laughs> hopefully we all have this. I certainly, I, you know, early in my teaching that felt, that felt, I did feel a sense of pride and insult, you know, that, that how could you do this to me? And now I just sort of laugh at my, my younger self going, you know, that that's actually not the way that attention works and not really the, <laughs> the kind of humility that's really necessary in teaching. I mean, he, he does strike me as so humble of just that continuous improvement. Another story that stands out so much in my mind <laughs> is a student asking him a question and him using humor and looking at his watch, or maybe I'm planting that seed in my own mind and saying, we'll get to that in 31 minutes. And he's not kidding. Like He actually has a very rigorous sense of time in his class beyond really anything that I'm, I mean, I, I was talking with my husband about this because I certainly do time out keynotes like that. When I, when I give talks, you got it. I feel like you really have to, you really have to have your timing down for that kind of public speaking. And I do like to engage my audience. It just felt differently to me, the way that he uses timing. Cause he's, I, I, I mean, it, there's some parallels, but there really is a difference. He is so disciplined about time. It, he is. And I mean, I guess, you know, the, he he's certainly showboating a little bit when when, when yeah. he says this will happen in thirty one minutes time or seventeen minutes time. You know, the, the, <laughs> he knows that the students will react to that in a particular way, and he knows that you know the, part of this is kind of the contract, right? If students realize that he's being so disciplined and so thoughtful about how he measures the time of the class, then they're kind of they're going to put their own effort in in, in a different way. I, I think it's important that you, you mentioned that kind of discipline. There is a need for flexibility too, right? In, in that we talk, we talk a little bit in the book about how he will be trying to gauge throughout the extent to which students are getting or not getting material and that they're mastering the material or not. And if he feels like they're doing better than he's expected, he will go through that more quickly. And conversely, if he, if, if he feels like that they're, they're not getting a particular thing, that will change his timings as well. So he he does he does both. He showboats a little bit. He kind of makes it public the fact that he has these kind of very disciplined and rigorous lesson plans that he will then, by the way, that he has course assistants measuring exactly how long he took on each section. Mm-hmm. And if he went over or, or under, he will be asking himself, well, you know, why did I do that? Do I need to budget more time for that bit next time? Or so it's a very iterative process. But I think, you know, more on a broader note, it speaks to his discipline, his devotion in making the classes as well thought out as it can be. You use the phrase, if he feels like, but I'd love for you to expand on that because he's not using his feelings. He's, he's, using, he's using evidence. Talk about the evidence that he gathers all along the way to gauge student learning and attention. You're absolutely right to pick me up on that because it, it's <laughs> the, entirely the wrong phrase. He doesn't do anything by feel when it comes when it comes to this stuff i just met you you and already i'm correcting you this is terrible i'm so rude (laughs) (laughs) when when you when you ask him about this stuff he 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 says immediately that i i do not trust myself to feel how well students are kind of uh, learning a a subject he just he he has he's got bad experiences in in past lectures when he thought god they're really they're really understanding this and he did Mm -hmm. a quick poll just to check and 17% of the class got the question right. And he thought, God, from this moment on, I'm not going to trust my intuition at all when it comes to mastery of the, of the subject. So 
Instead, he uses tools like Poll Everywhere, which is polling software. He will ask a lot of questions throughout the class uh, to understand where the class is at. He, he will often, uh, and you see this quite a lot, he will ask a question. If he finds that the class isn't perhaps getting to, to where he'd want them to be, he will get the class to talk to each other in groups of two or three and try to find someone with a different answer to them and try to persuade each other of what they think the right answer is. And, you know, it has this brilliant, brilliant impact of solving lots of kind of pedagogic problems at once. You know, these, the stronger students are then in the position of uh, teaching to other students, which is always a very uh, good way of, of kind of um, inf- reinforcing your own understanding of, of the subject. So you have that differentiation kind of automatically in there. You're also creating tension around the material. And that's one of Dan's aims in the class is to not just be kind of, you know, saying the material, asking the odd question and having kind of students come back to it, but creating real sort of heat in the room, real tension where students are kind of maybe partly getting to the answer, but but only partially and, and requiring other students to help them get the rest of the way. Because it's in it's in that process that the learning happens. You don't learn something from being told it, usually. You, you learn through having to engage with that material and kind of this iterative process that he's trying to spark when he uses those kinds of polling software or, or, or other ways of kind of gauging the, the room. Your book is called Invisible Learning. Before we get to Invisible Learning, would you start with visible learning? What would it look like if learning were visible? So we talk in the book about how if learning were visible, you would see, for example, a big number flash up above a student's head as soon as they learned a concept. And let's say that that number was the future value of the concept that you'd learned. So, you know, you become a successful engineer in later life. You learn Pythagoras' theorem for the first time when you're 11. And this kind of big $10,000 comes up in green with a kind of ka-ching noise above, above your head. Now, if that were the world that we were living in, teachers would be earning more than anyone in the world, right? You, you would, it, would be, it would make complete sense to pay insane amount of money to the best teachers because you, know, you would be going to their classroom and making these kind of instant profits from the learning that, that you were doing. And in a way, it's kind of, it's kind of a sobering thought to realize that the only difference between that world and this one is that you don't see the number. So that learning is still happen, happening. That value is still being created, but the teaching process is kind of far removed for, from, from the value. So what fascinated me in, in the kind of study in, of, of Dan's class and trying to think about you know, what he does was this kind of unexpected adventure into the field of, of leadership. And in leadership, or at least the way that it's taught at Kennedy School, they talk about any task that you might want to uh, accomplish as one of two things. It's either an adaptive challenge or it's a technical challenge. And technical challenges are things like, say, building a rocket. It may be really difficult, but at every stage in the building process, if if you're an engineer at NASA, you know that it's happened. You knew exactly when it was going to happen, and you can just kind of tick it off. In, in the logbook and everything about that process will be visible and the contrast with that is is an adaptive challenge 
where progress is invisible. And, you know, the mind goes to something like a difficult breakup. You know, it, it's something that a lot of people have had to um, get through at some point in their lives. But, you know, you're not going to know once you're there. It's probably going to go in waves. You have good days and bad days. And then when, once you think that you're over it, everything might change again. So progress is largely invisible for adapt to challenges like that. And one of the central ideas of the book is that learning is an adaptive challenge. Progress is invisible. And so we can apply a lot of the kind of leadership ideas to how to facilitate learning. Ah, but we treat it so much like a technical challenge in so many of our educational contexts. When, Yeah, this right. makes so much sense. It really does. And, and you know, part, of, part of the reason for that is that you have to examine it somehow, right? I mean, so at the at the end of the day it's 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 all very well us saying that this is about understanding and adaptive challenges and invisible progress and all of that but at some point at the end of it the students are going to get a mark you know whether it's out of 100 or or or, or letter grade or whatever and it's very difficult to reconcile those two activities because on the surface it looks like an exam should be able to measure learning i i think you go a little bit deeper than that, and they're almost polar opposites in in, in the things that, that that they can be measuring. My husband has a podcast called Coaching for Leaders, and every one of his episodes starts the same way with him saying, leaders aren't born, they're made. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your thoughts after going through this, this process of <laughs> yeah. really examining an exemplar teacher of the extent to which te great teachers kind of started out that way and had some real strengths to build upon or that, and again, I'm not trying to give you a binary, binary choice <laughs> for something that is definitely, I know, not binary, but just, just thoughts about sort of the natural things that teachers, great teachers may have versus the discipline, the rigor that they might use to continually get better. Yeah, I, I think that that growth mindset is is hugely important, right? So Dan, the first time he taught this class, it, in his own words, it was a disaster. Now, now I'm convinced that it's not quite as bad as, as he make, makes it out to be. But in his mind, this was just the first step in a kind of iterative process. So that humility, you know, which is the word we keep coming back to, was hugely important in him not having the stubbornness to say, well, you know, I know this stuff back to front. This is how I'm going to teach it. But to keep gathering data. And Dan gathers more data than anyone I've ever seen in my life, not just you know, in class, but from the course assistants afterwards, every single problem set mark, every question, every point of feedback that, that, that he gets from, from the students. He goes back and his reflections, his self-evaluations on classes just last year run to, I think, 32,000 words and 94 pages. So, you know, when people talk about Dan, and they do at the Kennedy School sometimes as this kind of magic, you know, teacher, we, we can't all be like Dan, there's something kind of crazy about it. They're kind of avoiding the work a little bit, right? This is a guy that's more devoted than uh, anyone you, you could imagine. I think the other thing about that quote, this idea that leaders aren't born but made, that there's a kind of underlying premise there that one can be a leader, that leadership is something that is inherent to a person and not something that you exercise. And one of the kind of interesting things about the study of leadership is that 
by some views of it, leadership is an activity. It's, it, it's not inherent in one person and just not there in another. It's something that we exercise. And so looked at that way, you know, it's not about who you are, what kind of character you have. People associate charisma with leadership, which can be very dangerous. It, it can be very, you know, charisma can be very helpful in building bonds between you and, and the people that you're trying to lead. But it could also kind of create these mutual dependencies and kind of cause you to veer off course from, from the subject matter. So I think this idea of, of leadership as an activity, the, the humility to accept that you're not going to get it right uh, every time, that you're going to have to gather data, be very iterative um, about it, are all things that Dan is very intentional about. And whenever you talk about this stuff with him, you can feel it. You know, there's, there's a real passion for self-improvement, which, which I think is quite an impressive uh, thing about him. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how he gathers data and if we can just pile on top of that, because that's an easy question. I'm kidding. Uh, so what's going on in my mind right now is I, I want to hear more about how he goes about it. I know he does what, what might be described as journaling, but I'd also like to hear about I think what you're not saying is that his revisions to his course always lead toward smoothing out a perfectly level path. In my own teaching, I've made the error sometime of thinking that when they stumble, when they have challenges, when they get things wrong, that I did something wrong, so I should quote unquote fix that. But those challenges in the learning process are actually the most important part. So I, do you, as you know, as we're reflecting back on our teaching to be effective, the goal isn't reduce all that friction. You've talked about it as heat or, you know, challenging students. That's not the goal. So talk a little bit about his journaling versus what his teaching philosophy would tell him he should be aiming for. There's, there's a great bit in the class where he gets to, I think it's class five, and he's trying to teach them about some concept like sampling distributions or something, which he knows is, is difficult. He really struggles to teach it. You know, this, is a, this is a great teacher admitting that this is something that he never, he never gets right, you know, no matter how, how many times he's, he goes over it every year. And part of the way that he gets the students on board with, a, with this difficult topic is you know, in class, he goes through his evaluations that, that he's made every year, and they're all terrible. So, so, so he's, he's going through saying, 2012, this class went awfully. 2013, I thought this class was going better this year, but it turned out it was rubbish. He, he, he brings the students into his way of, of thinking. So I, th- I think that's, that's the first thing, you know, the, the students are part of that teaching, teaching process. I think the other thing is, is, is that he is not just you know journaling and you know self-reflecting he's seeking feedback on a constant basis from not just students but also you know guests in his classroom and his teaching assistants so the the sorts of meetings that that as a teaching assistant you would have with them are full of in the best possible way conflict and debate so he encourages an atmosphere in which he can be questioned and his ideas can be questioned. And I think the result is a class that is never, ever going to be perfect. It's, a, it, it, it's not what he seeks to, to kind of to strive for, but he kind of makes do with a class that improves every year. And 
if it doesn't do that, then he'll he'll make sure that he's able to tweak it for the year after. But again, that humility to 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 understand that it is an iterative process and you will go up and down, I think is is something that sets him apart. Before David and I share our recommendations and the recommendations segment, I wanted to just take a moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. If you've been listening for a while, you already know that Text Expander is the longest running sponsor, and it is also one of the first things I ever install on a new computer or device. What Text Expander lets us do is save time. We get to save time by coming up with what they call snippets. There's a few characters that we set up, and it's super easy to set a new one up. And then as soon as we press the space bar, it automatically extends into whatever it is we've decided that that means. So I've got it set up to be able to have different signatures for the different roles that I play in my life. I've got it set up to have my work phone number that I ever remember. I have it set up to do show notes. So when I have a new set of show notes for the episode, it'll ask me what's the episode number, who's the guest, what is the recommendation I want to make on that particular episode, just like I'll be doing in a moment. And I recently set up some text expander snippets related to my revised weekly update from teaching in higher ed. As I mentioned, it's super easy to set them up. Everything as simple as a phone number or an email address, all the way up to what are fillable snippets, where again, it asks questions and then it'll respond or it'll grab today's date if you need that information included. It really is a flexible tool, easy to get started with and easy to continue learning more about. In fact, they have a whole database, a whole set of other people's snippets that they have created and are willing to share with us to continue to improve our text expander usage. Thanks so much for Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. If you'd like to learn more and subscribe and get a trial, go to textexpander.com slash podcast and please let them know that you heard about Text Expander from Teaching in Higher Ed. Again, that was textexpander.com slash podcast. And thanks once again for sponsoring today's episode. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. For my first recommendation, I would like to recommend this book, Invisible Learning. And I mean, from start to finish, it resonated with me 100%. There was nothing where I thought, oh, I couldn't use this in my teaching. I don't teach statistics. I don't teach at Harvard. <laughs> I, I, I teach an entirely different context. And I just found so many beneficial things to draw from in a, in a very, I mean, I think you're a very humble writer yourself. You're a humble researcher, an observer of what you learned. It's a delightful read. So I'd like to start just by recommending your book. And then the second thing is that speaking of wanting students to really have a deeper sense of learning. One of the things that we didn't talk about in the main interview is that he asks students to communicate things if they were talking to a policymaker and trying to put their communication outside of uh, writing an essay question on a test and into a, a more realistic kind of context. And so one of the things I got such joy out of doing, I'm teaching a business ethics class. And we early on in the semester, we learn about some different philosophers and some different ethical thinkers. And one of the things that comes up in the class is called the trolley problem. And some of you have heard of the trolley problem or variations of it. And it's like a train's going down the track and you can just let it go and it'll kill X number of people, or you could like actually put your own self into it and move a lever and all of a sudden fewer people die. But you know, you had to do something to have fewer people die. I don't enjoy these, by the way, <laughs> these are 
not things I enjoy. But to get us into business ethics, we kind of have to start there on the trolley before we can get off of the trolley and more to applied business ethics. But uh, I've started to ask my students for some very small stakes assignments to submit memes or video clips that they have found. And Oh, what a joy that is, because not only did they get to learn it a little bit deeper, and we talked about the connection between emotions and learning earlier in our conversation, so they're able to laugh, and then they can make me laugh, and we have you know all these conversations. So I'm going to suggest just in general that you ask your students for some memes or video clips around the topics that you are teaching, and be prepared for absolute delight. So I'm going to share <laughs> I'm going to share in the show notes a couple of videos that uh, actually one that the student shared and then one that played after <laughs> the video they shared and there are around the trolley problem and the trolley problem from a 2-year-old's perspective and how their dad sets up <laughs> this little toy train track and how the 2-year-old resolves it and then how his younger sister resolves the trolley problem. I don't want to give the endings away and I don't do videos via audio as well because they're very much um, things that would be fun for you to watch. So I'm going to suggest that you go to the show notes and check out trolley problem number one and then trolley problem as approached by the sibling. They're absolute delights. So David, I'll pass it over to you for your recommendations. Well, that that sounds wonderful. I I guess I'd I'd say, first of all, that that kind of devotion to bringing new things into into the classroom is it kind of sh- shows the value of not treating it as a search for perfection. Because how could you possibly search for perfection when the outside context is changing so much around you? And you know that that kind of desire to bring things like memes, which are kind of new um, inventions over the last few years, into the classroom to stimulate learning, I think is fantastic. I'm going to go on a slightly different uh, tack for my recommendation. It's a book called Thanks for the Feedback. Uh, it's by Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen from the Harvard Negotiation Project. And the subtitle is The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, Even When It's Off-Base, Unfair, Poorly Delivered, and Frankly, You're Not in the Mood. And I think it, it really kind of chimed with me, this book, because I feel like I've been on my own journey with, with, with feedback. And I, I think like a lot of people who, especially people who you know, did well in school and are used, used to kind of getting good evaluations on things, you come into the professional world and you get your first pieces of, of bad feedback, you immediately feel really defensive, right? And, and you see, what do you mean I haven't done enough, enough work? I've been working so hard and it's not about me. This is about you and all the things that you could have done to, to, to make this whole process better. And um, I think what most people, including me, have do in reaction to that is to kind of develop a way of still feeling those things, but to say the right things in, in response. So we say, oh, God, that's... That's really useful feedback. Thanks so much for that. I'll definitely work on that. Whereas inside, you're thinking this person doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, how can I? How can they think these things when I've done X, Y, Z? And you know, the, this book made it was really helpful to me in helping me not just to kind of say those things, but but to think in a kind of positive way too. Uh, I, I think you know, for those of us that have trouble with fixed mindsets instead of growth mindsets. A part of that is because we've gone through life seeing everything as an evaluation and they distinguish in the book between different types of feedback. You know, is this appreciation? Is it coaching? Is it evaluation? And what were you looking for in advance? And often we see an evaluation in feedback that was intended as, as, as coaching. So what we often do is a kind of defensive mechanism in response to that is to is to say well 
is to deauthorize the person giving it, right? So, so we say, you know, the, how can you give me this feedback when you're equally bad at X, Y, Z? And I just found the way that the book laid out some of these ideas super helpful in, in saying, right, when you're receiving feedback, keep the conversation about you. Don't push it to anyone else or any other ideas. If you need to talk about those things, you can talk about those things later. But it was something that I didn't realize that I needed and that you know, I, I genuinely felt had, had a big impact on me. I really need to pick that one up. In fact, I know we already own that one because my husband interviewed them for his <laughs> podcast. But, Are you kidding? Yeah, <laughs> but I, I really know I need to read it because part of what I took away from their conversation is just that, the you know, the more you do it, the more helpful it can be. And then also the more used to it you get where you can kind of desensitize yourself to it feeling every time like it's evaluative and, you know. Uh, absolutely and you can yeah you can keep track of yourself you can after any yeah and by the way feedback's much more common than we think of it it's not just that kind of formal session where you're at work and someone sat down with you across a table it's yeah everything that anyone ever says to you almost in your personal life or your professional life uh, is is some form of feedback on, on on something and so so yeah i i found the way that they kind of broke all of those things down and gave you a framework to think about it just just so, so helpful. Yeah, I've been thinking so much. And I think this comes from the work of Brene Brown. But just not not only about yes, let's seek out feedback, so important, but let's really be strategic about who it is we're seeking it out from. And the more that you're in a public space where you're writing books, or you're doing podcasts, or that kind of stuff you do, occasionally, you're going to run across, you know, some pretty darn harsh feedback, but then you kind of have to ask yourself that, you know, and I, I'm better at doing it now. And I don't actually get a lot of negative feedback about the podcast. But there was recently a, a iTunes or Apple podcast review that was really, really harsh. And then it was, it's, <laughs> it's clear from what this person wrote, they've never actually listened. They just have strong feelings about, about that formal education isn't valuable. And that what you really should do is, you know, one of those like alt MBA kind of things. <laughs> So I was kind of like, yeah, I don't think he's talking to you. And I don't think he's giving you good, helpful feedback to make your show better. But yeah, thinking about strategically, where can you source out feedback from people whose, whose perspectives would be valuable to you? And that's something I've been thinking about as well. And to come full circle, it's, it's exactly what Dan does in selecting his kind of course assistants. So he won't pick the people that were necessarily best at statistics. Mm. He picks people for their honesty and ability to give him the bad news when something didn't go right. Yeah. Oh, I love that we came full circle. I am so glad to have met you and been connected with you and absolutely love your book. I don't even know if it's fair to ask you this. I think you're a brilliant writer. Is there something that's kind of next on the horizon for you? Or is it too soon to be thinking about that? <laughs> uh, it's too soon for now. I would love to write another book at some point. I really enjoyed the the experience. You know, it's, it's a tough thing to do. It's a crazy thing to do as well when you do it, as you will have found for, for the first time. The idea of writing a book when you haven't done it before is is almost insane. But you know, you get to the end of it and you get that sense of pride. And I, and I really loved doing it. I loved talking to Dan, talking to the students, kind of going on that adventure to find out what it was that that, that makes his class so special. So I would love to do something in the in the future, but uh, as to what it is, uh, I don't know yet. It's still open. Well, I I just love today's conversation, and thank you for contributing to the community. And I can't wait for more people to get their hands on your book. Thank you so much. It was really lovely to talk to you. 
Thanks once again to David Franklin for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed 352 on Invisible Learning. I hope you all have a chance to pick up his book. I think there are so many tremendous insights for us as educators. And if any of you listening have yet to subscribe to my weekly updates, I recently redid them at the start of the year and encourage you to head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks once again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.